weekend. Everybody can enjoy the nice weather we had yesterday. Anybody can speak up inside. Have uh, Pastor Brian and uh, Josh back. I know you all enjoyed some nice weather this past week. And we'll give Jim some new pictures up there behind the songs. I don't know if y'all took many or not, but uh, I'm not tired of those by any means, but uh, I'd love to see some of yours as well. So, uh, Next, maybe I'll have some more after it here in a month. I'll have some more. I'll sit in place. So, uh, rotating through. Um, you see everybody here this morning. It's a great day to be together. Be uh, worshiping our Lord together. We are going to be at a good time of preaching. So if you want to find Luke chapter 9 in your Bible, that you have, then you will be uh, picking up where we left off, verse 21. And, uh, so before we jump into it, a, a quick quiz for anybody in school age. Uh, does anybody know the name Johann von Luda? Nope, that's Gouda. This is Goethe, G-O-E-T-H-E, German guy. Anybody? He's an author. Anybody not school age? Anybody? He wrote a story. He came up with the name of a man I know we all recognize. Who, who knows who Faust was? Who was Faust? Oh, Audrey knows. No. No one knows who Faust was? What? No? No, that guy Fox is who you're thinking of. No? He's a fictional character. He was a philosopher. A uh, very wise, very knowledgeable man. Also, very foolish, but very not so not wise. He was very knowledgeable, and uh, he became known for a particular type of bargain we now call a Faustian bargain. Um, he had a running with a character named Mephistopheles. Anybody know? Yeah. Okay. What? what? <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah. So Faust in the story, he. Uh, um, learned all he could pretty much and uh, worked to, to be as successful as he could and still found that everything was not what he thought it should be. It's so a one and more. And so he turned and wound up making a deal with the devil. Uh, and uh, Mephistopheles, as a representation of the devil, came and said, Hey, I'll be your servant. I'll give you anything you've asked for and uh, for a certain number of years. And then at the end, all you got to do is give me your soul. Pretty uh, good deal, huh? You don't need that soul anyway. Right, so uh, maybe I should have gone this way. Maybe I should have said, "Hey, there's a story about a little uh, Ursula and a uh, little mermaid." Who uh, anybody know that story? And uh, okay, okay, sorry, you gonna speak to your audience. So, <laughs> right, right, yeah, a little before that originally, but uh, so Little Mermaid made a similar deal. Yeah, she made a deal with the devil. Since so that's this phrase often used now: deal with the devil, Faustian bargain. Is when basically you uh, give up something that is eternal for something that is temporary, and uh, it's interesting that you know this is a common trope in many stories. They obviously borrowed heavily the original Faust, but um, von Goodes was not the original one. You see, the original Faust was a bargain being um, offered to Jesus. Saw that three weeks ago, and uh, Satan came to him and said, Listen, just bow down, worship me, I'll give you everything you've seen here in the whole world. And uh, so, the relevance today is that our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus warns against this type of uh, foolish short sightedness 
and calls us to uh, follow him, not sacrifice the eternal on the altar of temporal. So, that in mind, uh, I'd like for us to go ahead and stand, and then we'll read together Luke 9, verses 21 through 26. Twenty-seven. That's okay. Sabbath twenty-six. So uh, here we see that the little context. I'll kind of jump in the middle of a thought here. If you're with us last week. You remember. If not, then I'll just bring you up to speed. Um, they're having a discussion. Jesus is talking with his disciples. And the question was centers around: Who do people say that Jesus was? And who did the disciples? Who do you say that Jesus is? And so Peter, of course, makes the declaration and confession that he is the Christ, Son of God. And uh, Jesus commends that knowledge. But then he has a warning for them. And that's where we jump in here in verse 21. Let's read together. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, come to you, Lord, just asking for your help. We look to study your word, to understand the message that it um, relates to us. We thank you for it. Thank you for this time. We just ask that as uh, we turn our hearts and minds to this, Lord, that you would help us at this time, help us to understand, help us to, to hear with ears that are desiring to hear. And Lord, give us hearts willing and eager to obey. Uh, this helps to be informed more like the image of Jesus for the time spent this morning. Please let me pray. And thank you. you. May be seated. <clears throat> so, uh, certainly a familiar passage recorded in uh, two or three other places in the Gospels. So, um, certainly a familiar passage, but uh, I want to challenge us on the outset. Don't let familiarity uh, cause you to drift or to not pay attention. Uh, these words are recorded multiple times because they're important. I mean, everything in the Bible recorded is important, but when it's recorded multiple times, um, and Jesus is, the, the Holy Spirit is giving us attention. Listen, pay attention. Uh, once is not enough. You need to hear this multiple times. And so while you may have um, studied these verses and heard sermons on these verses before, I hope that you'll uh, approach this passage today, this sermon today, this time we have um, with fresh ears and fresh eyes. So we see right away that... Uh, Jesus gives the warning to his disciples that he's given to other people throughout the book. And I sort of um, hedged on and said, yeah, there's some, you know, I hadn't really gotten into why that was because I knew we were coming to this passage where he gives us the reason why. But it's strange, he, he tells, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't, don't say it that clearly, that plainly yet. And uh, of course that seems strange because today we would never say, all right, we're going to give out free Bibles, but don't say anything about Jesus. Okay, just give the Bible and run away. We would never do that, right? Because we are here to proclaim the, more, the story of Jesus. So it seems strange that he would charge his very disciples, you know, with this charge. And he's told other people who have been saved and experienced, you know, um, his grace and power in a miraculous way. He said, don't tell anyone about this yet. So 
Here we see he, he actually gives an explanation of why he's saying this. And uh, so he strictly charges and commands him to tell us to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So I think there are, are two things that are um, present in this um, statement that Jesus makes. It helps understand why it is that he doesn't want um, them going around spreading the word yet. First, bad things have to happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected, must be killed. Okay? So, basically, Jesus said, we don't want to sway everyone. We, we, you know, we don't want to you know, convince everyone. We don't want to have this huge you know, outcry that's going to keep that from happening. I've still got to unveil my identity because, you know, these groups of people, the elders, chief priests, scribes, they have evil deeds to perform. And we're not going to prevent them from doing that by causing doubt, sowing doubt, saying, hey, this might actually be the Messiah. We're going to veil that because these things have to happen. You know, it's not, Jesus is not saying, well, I think it's going to happen. You know, if we could avoid it, we would. You know, let, let's, you know, let's see how things go. No, he's telling them clearly, these things must take place. They must happen. So let's don't tell everybody what you know. And they must happen. And I think the other point he's making here is that really, the disciples don't know the whole story. You know, if they were to go around saying, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, what do you think would happen? What was the Messiah? What was that? We've talked about it before. As the Old Testament, as most, most Jews understood it, what was the Messiah? What was that going to be? Yeah, a king, right? Yeah. So what do you think would happen if he's out there being proclaimed as the king? Do you think anybody around that time, of, that, that uh, period might have had issue with that claim? Rome, Herod, King Herod. Yeah, he probably didn't want to share the throne. He certainly didn't want to be displaced. Yeah, certainly Rome would have an issue. And if you understand the, the broad context of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, you know, if Rome had taken and murdered him, then that would have been outside of the Old Testament prophecies. That would not have been in line with God's plan. So he didn't want to put himself up as the king and then ha have Rome come in and, what if they just locked him up for 50 years and decided, well, we don't want to execute him. Yeah, you know, but we don't want him spreading this around, so we'll just lock him up for 50 years. Would that have fallen in line with, with the Old Testament prophecy and God's plan? No. Dies of old age in a cell somewhere due to neglect? That's not what he came for. That's not what he came for. Well, he wouldn't have suffered the same way. I mean, I'm not, I, those, are, those are pretty bad places to stay, but yes, to your, I think I understand the intent of what you're saying. He would not have suffered in the way that was prophesied. Right? He would not have been able to fulfill those prophecies. So they didn't want him put as, you know, the, the disciples didn't really understand. So if they start talking about the Messiah, they're going to have the wrong message, most likely. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you don't understand. I must suffer many things. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And on the third day, I'll be raised. So I think that's the second reason is the disciples really didn't have the full story yet. He was starting to reveal it to them. But the other gospel accounts, 
you know, actually say that not only do they not understand this, but they actually reject this when he reveals it to them. Peter says, no, far be it. That can't be the way. That's not, that will never happen. And he's like, I'll do any, I'm never going to let that happen. And what does Jesus tell him? Or somebody say it. What is he? It's very strong words for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Right? That's a message from Satan. You know, you're contradicting what Jesus is saying. That's probably not a message from the gospel. That's probably a message from the other place. And uh, Jesus is very clear about that. So anytime we have a, a message or an idea that conflicts with Jesus or the Bible, um, it's not from him. He's not changing his mind all of a sudden. You know, that's, a mind, that's either a thought from our own sinful tendencies or from the pit of hell. So we see that disciples really didn't understand the whole story. It's Jesus is beginning to reveal it in explicit terms to them because it's coming soon. Um, but they, they don't really understand that. So I think for those two reasons, he's telling them, listen, it's not time to tell everybody yet. One, other things have to happen, and we don't want to derail that. And number two, you really don't know what you're talking about yet. So he tells them this, and then he turns to all in verse uh, 23 and says, famous words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, again, these are words that's easy to hear with our church ears, so I want to kind of try to pierce through some of that. And... Uh, when we talk about deny himself, we're going to look at these three phrases a little bit independently. This idea of deny himself. You know, when I heard this before, I've always thought about, you know, me at the buffet, you know, and I've already had more than I have, more than I needed. And I'm seeing the chocolate fountain at Golden Corral, and they've put out a whole new plate of strawberries and marshmallows and all the stuff. And I'm like, oh, I've had too much, but look at those things. Oh, the chocolate fountain. I can't have those just anywhere. They're only here. But if I deny myself, I'll say, no, I'm going to deny myself that pleasure and have a salad. <laughs> okay, that's never happened. But uh, theoretically, that, that's the idea of hmm? chocolate salad, chocolate beans. Cocoa beans is where chocolate comes from. So it is, in a sense, salad. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. We can just buy anything, right? Um, so in denying myself, you know, these, these sort of, you know, um, you know, physical pleasures, you know, maybe a dessert or, or maybe, you're, you know, someone's shopping and they see a new pair of shoes, right? And you're like, Alexa loves shoes. And she's like, oh, I love this pair of shoes. No, I'm going to what? Be good, right? I'm going to be good. I'm going to deny myself. And I'm not going to buy that new pair of shoes. I'm going to go do something else with that money instead. And uh, so in, in a sense, we always thought, I always had this idea that denying myself was sort of an ascetic approach, you know, where we, you know, maybe not a full call to poverty, but something akin to that. And that when I deny myself, it's a, you know, occasional thing or an intermittent thing that I'm constantly you know, trying to, you know, do, make good choices, make good choices and deny my, my natural tendencies in a sense. Um, but as you study this, it's really not what it's, it's saying here. The word deny, as I understand it, is actually a word that means refuse to follow. Okay, so when it says deny yourself, it's really refuse to follow yourself. I think it's contrasted with, but instead, follow Jesus. We'll get to that in a little bit more detail in just a minute, but I think it's a contrasting here. Refuse to follow yourself, instead follow Jesus. So it's not something where we, you know, 
try to be good when, when a decision's set in front of us. Um, and we're going to see the, how much different that is by the next phrase, which is take up his cross. Now, we read this, of course, we are on this side of the cross, of Jesus' cross. And, of course, he took that, carried that cross as far as he could. And then, you know, Simon um, Serene was enlisted to help him, but he carried that cross to Golgotha. And so today, when people talk about bearing a cross, carrying your cross, what does this commonly mean? What do you think people mean when they say, yeah, that's, I got to bear my cross? What do you think that means? It's an idiom, it's an expression, a figure of speech. And what does that mean to you? Being martyred? Um, probably not, because people today use it pretty casually. Uh, I'm sure the martyr, martyrs did feel that way. But uh, anybody? Yeah, dealing with something uncomfortable, particularly something that's over a prolonged period of time, right? Not, not a one-time thing, but an ongoing thing. Yeah, you know, oh, me, I've uh, got this horrible job, but that's my cross to bear, right? Oh, I've got this, you know, mom pinky toe. It hurts every time I walk, but that's my cross to bear, you know. What? Casual martyrs, maybe so. Um, and so I think that's how mo most Americans use the, the phrase, the figure of speech, you know, my cross to bear, whatever it is, something that's going, that you just have to, it's not, not going to go away, something you're just going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future, at least, if not your entire life. Um, I don't think that's how they understood it back then. Uh, because the, uh, the, the certain crosses were very common. You know, Rome made them, Rome basically uh, made them so that everybody knew what they were. Uh, but it was not something that you would actually take regularly or more than once. Carrying a cross, I think, as near as I can understand it, has the same idea as today's statement, dead man walking. Have you ever heard that phrase? Dead man walking, what's that refer to? Hmm? Death row. Somebody who's been on death row and is walking to their execution. Um, apparently, the, uh, there was a corrections officer in Louisiana who began using this phrase back in the 80s. So somebody was on there, their, their day of execution had come. They walked out of their cell to the form of execution. He would announce, dead man walking. Uh, he, he's, today is the day of his death, but he's still walking. And so this was kind of the idea of taking the cross. Because it was a one-way trip. Nobody ever came back from carrying their cross. It was a one-way journey. And so I think read in that sense, Jesus' call here to take up your cross is the call to die daily. It's the call to die to self. Just like you know, Paul speaks of this numerous times in his letters. Um, Galatians 5.24 being one says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the call to take up the cross. The call to die to self. But once you pick up that cross, I can say there's only one way it ends. And that's with a death. Now, lest people say Jesus was calling for suicide or something like that, he says, take up your cross daily so making it clear this is a spiritual uh, death a spiritual thing that takes that takes place paul would say that i die daily 
You know, it's not something that happens once, unfortunately, because we still live in these bodies of flesh. We still have these simple tendencies. So this call to deny ourselves, that is to refuse to follow ourselves and take up this cross to mortify the flesh with its sinful desires, to put it to death. That's the only reason you will pick up a cross is to kill somebody. So you, you in the flesh, you take up this cross and crucify the flesh with his passions and desires every day. That's the call that Jesus is putting out to us. And then, so that's the sort of the negative side, and then the positive side, follow me. Follow me. So two words that we just easily gloss over. Oh yeah, we follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. So I'm trying to think of a, of a picture that would help us understand this, you know, what, what does this mean? How do we follow Jesus? And I, I thought back to a time when I was about 10 years old and my dad and my grandpa took me out to the, uh, this large airway, air, airfield, airstrip. And they had a tons of military planes out there on the ground. You could walk up, you could look down in them, couldn't get in them. You could look down in them and then you go over one and see. I was just totally enthralled by all of these things. Um, jets I'd never seen before. This is before Top Gun. I mean, there was, you know, that hadn't happened. There was nothing. I mean, this, this was it. This was the first exposure to anything like this. And I just thought these were the coolest things ever. Then we went and sat down in the stands and I was like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? They had a couple little stump planes doing things. It was pretty cool, you know. But then they had the uh, marquee act come down and it's Blue Angels. Anybody ever seen the Blue Angels? Anybody know what the Blue Angels are? Yeah, what? Oh, man. Well, they're even better now than when I saw them because they were still finding the A4s back when I saw them. Um, so the, the Blue Angels, for those who may not know, is this precision flight team from the Navy. Uh, back then, again, they flew these A4 Skyhawks. They top speed about 600 miles an hour. And there was like six of them. And they would, they came zooming in. You, 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 could, you couldn't even hear them. They were right in front of you. You hadn't even heard them yet. And then, shoom, then you hear them. And boom, these jets are just rumbling. And they're all like super close together. And they do all these maneuvers and everything. And I was just like, what is this? That's so amazing. And I was like, how in the world do they do that? Because then later on, I started reading about them. And they're flying close. You think they're close. How close do you think they actually get to each other? How, how close do you think? There's a maximum distance for like, okay, you have this one thing where there's four of them. They're all, I forget what they call it, the wedge or something like that. But they're all four, one in front, two on the side, and one in the back. And they're like super, super close. How close do you think they are? There's a maximum distance. And then there's a practical distance. But the maximum distance is, anybody? 20 feet, 500 feet from each other? Yeah, 20 feet, two feet. Six feet, the minimum that they're allowed to have on that formation is 36 inches, three feet, 36 inches. That's the minimum. Practically, sometimes they're trading paint. A lot of times they're less than a foot. I am serious. Look it up. Look it up. It does, right? How do they do that? Do they use the force? No. So I looked at it and... They're, the only way they do it, there's only one guy who knows where they're going. There's only one guy who knows the flight plan. There's only one guy who actually controls the speed and everything else they're going. They call him the boss. It's the guy in front. Everybody else 
They're not looking at where they're going. They're not looking at how fast they're going. They are looking at him. They call it flying paint. They pick a, a letter or a thing on his plane, one spot, and they float, and that's all they care about. Whether that guy flies into the ocean or flies towards the sun or smashes into a building, they're not going to know until after it's happened because they're not looking at any of that. They're following the boss. That's the only way it can do it. Because if they were all trying to do their own thing, there's no way you could find that precision. So that requires 100% trust, faith, and following the boss. And that's how we should follow Jesus. Not worrying about, well, this doesn't look right. Is this, is he, did he take a wrong turn? Man, those guys, the blue angels, they, that thought never enters their mind. 100% trust. I'm following the boss. I trust the boss. But you know what? If the boss crashes me in the ground, I'm still following him. I'm not worried about it. I got one thing, one job, it's to follow my boss. And that's what they do. Because they have this focus and dedication, practice hundreds of hours, so they can do these amazing things that seem impossible, right? Totally crazy. Now, if, you know, Logan just saw them, now they fly the F-18 Super Hornets, which can fly, you know, like Mach 2. Now, they don't fly because it's the sonic booms would destroy the thing, but it's still like right at the, uh, they call it, um, what do they call it? Uh, mock block, mock blocking or something, like right at, right at the speed of sound. They never break it because of, you know, cause damage and stuff. Um, but, yeah, those planes are even more amazing. I haven't seen them. I saw the Thunderbirds who flew F-16s in Charleston many years later. But, yeah, those things, if you ever get a chance, you should definitely see them. It's definitely, uh, definitely interesting. But if we, if we break it down, you know, how do we follow? What are the things for someone to follow? Whether you're in that sort of, you know, precision military maneuver or just, you know, um, following somebody in a car or following Jesus. Three things I came up with. One, you got to be going the same direction, right? You can't be following someone if you're going a different direction. So you got to be going the same direction as that person. Two, you got to avoid distraction, right? Because if you're following and then you're looking away and then you look back, oh, wait, where'd they go? They go. I mean, things can change that fast. So if you're going to follow somebody, you've got to avoid distractions. And number three, if you're going to follow somebody, you got to stay close, right? you, you got to stay close enough so you, so you can see them, you know. Watch where they're going. Watch what they're doing. So those, you're going to go, be going the same direction, avoid distraction, and stay close. I think that's a pretty good recipe for us following Jesus. You know? Are we going the same way as Jesus? Are we following what he's called us to? Are we doing what he's asked us to do and, and obeying? Are we blocking, are we limiting distractions that would pull us away from him? Are we, are we, allowed, are we focusing our hearts and minds on what he's called us to? Or are we distracted by so many other things around in our lives today that are so easily pull us away? And then are we staying close to Jesus? We're staying close. What does that mean? We spend time with him. See a priority in our lives. You know, do we do we come to him regularly in prayer and in, and in Bible study? Do we talk about him and share other, with him with other people? Do we gather with the church and the saints when it's an opportunity to do so? All these things, how, that, those are things, ways we stay close to him. And when we do those things, we're going to be able to follow him. 
We're going the same direction, avoiding distraction, staying close. That's how we follow. So then he goes on in verse 24 and, mention, and des describes even more. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's interesting, a lot of times people take this idea that Jesus puts forth here and they sort of you know, twist it a little bit, especially non-Christians. And they have this idea that, you know, if I just give my life away, then I'll, it'll do me well in the long term. Okay? But notice this is not a guarantee for those people who pursue an unselfish life. Um, this is not a guarantee for those who pursue philanthropic good deeds. Um, this is not any sort of formula for those who want to feel good about themselves by doing well for other people and giving up of what they have. Instead, this is a promise to those who follow Jesus. He doesn't say whoever loses his life will save it. That's what sometimes people often will say. Whoever gives his life away will, will save it. He says whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Those who give their lives for Jesus will save it. That's the promise. And that's what we need to be striving for and understanding that if we try to hold on to this life and save this life and make it as good as we can right now, ultimately, that's a futile endeavor. And if we do that to the exclusion of following Jesus, then ultimately at the end of our lives, we'll find that we're, we're lost. So he's calling us to give, his, give our life for his sake. And here we go. Um, the, uh, for who, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And this, of course, is you know, what I referred to at the beginning of the, the Faustian bargain. And he warns against, you know, if there was a way for you to gain not just knowledge or wealth or riches or relationships, but if you were to gain the entire world and yet lose yourself, that's a bad deal. That is not a good bargain, and you should not take that. Anybody remember watching the show, Let's Make a Deal? Anybody show your age? Come on, raise your hand high if you ever watched Let's Make a Deal. Monty Hall, right? Yeah, Monty Hall is great, right? He would give you one thing right here. Hey, you can have $100, or you can have what? Behind door number one. Right? So people are like, oh, well, is this, should I take the money? And, oh, should I, should I do that? It's always, you know, okay, I'm going to keep the $100. Oh, that's too bad. Behind door number one, you had a brand new house. You know, million dollar house. Could have been yours, but enjoy that $100. Oh, I made such a bad deal. Oh, it was so bad. Or here you go. You want to keep your $100? And no, I'm going I'm to get, I want, I want behind what's door number two. That's what I want. I want door number two. I don't, I don't know what's behind door number one, but door number two is the number for me. Okay, well, give me that $100 back, and you get a bag full of feathers. And, uh, oh, okay, bag full of feathers. Yeah, and everybody laughs because they made a bad deal, right? There's one guy who wasn't laughing. The guy who made the bad deal, <laughs> they weren't laughing. They felt horrible. They're like, oh, I could have had this. I could have had that. I could have, I could have, I could have. Yeah, you never knew. You never knew what was behind door number one or two or three. He only knew what you had in And it's not like that in life. We know, um, and I'm not going to push the analogy too far, but 
We know what Jesus promises us. And we know what we deserve apart from Jesus. Amen? Apart from him, we deserve death because we all stand before him as a sinner. We all stand guilty before him. We all deserve death and punishment in hell. There's no secret. You can call it door number one if you want to, but we know what's behind it. And Jesus is saying here, look, I don't care what money hall is going to offer you. I don't care what Mephistopheles or the devil is going to try to entice you with. Door number one leads to hell. Don't go down it. Don't take it's always no matter what you're getting along with door number one, it's not going to be a good deal. He tells us don't do that. No profit in it. This idea that whoever loses his life for my sake will save it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Lose your life for my sake and will save it. How does that work? But if you just think a little more broadly, it's not that hard to understand because this is a law of nature, right? Um, any any farmers? Anybody ever have a garden here? Audrey did. Yeah, Jim did. Tabitha did. All right. So. If you want to grow corn, how do you grow corn? Plant what? Plant a piece of corn. Right? And you've got one piece of corn. You could eat it or you could plant it. Right? You eat it, what does it do for you? Nothing. One piece of corn is not going to be enough for anybody. The Bible uses the same analogy. Jesus does talking about a, a grain of wheat. That's what they used to use back then. What do you use to make with wheat? What do you use wheat to make? Flour and then bread, right? Yes. Can you take one grain of wheat and make, a, make any bread with it? No, of course not. It's not enough. So how do you get enough wheat to make bread? What does this one, half, one grain of wheat have to do? It has to go into the ground and it has to die. Right? John 12 tells us, except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone by itself. Useless, essentially. But if it dies, then it can bring forth much fruit. Then you can have one grain of wheat create a whole stalk. And that stalk has multiple grains of wheat. You plant those. Now you got a whole field of wheat. Now you can make bread enough for you and to sell and to take care of a whole village, provide money for yourself. Now the wheat can do what it's intended to do, which is to feed people. But if that grain of wheat stays by itself, what does it accomplish? Nothing. Feeds, feeds a worm, maybe. One worm, maybe. Okay. So this idea is, is something that we see in nature around us. We just have to understand, you know, the analogy he's making here is that if we will allow God to use us, we take up our cross daily, we die to ourselves daily. When we die, then we can bring forth much fruit. Because as that seed goes into the ground and dies, it is then set free to become what it was always intended to be. Right? Say for us, when we allow Jesus to use our life, when we die to ourselves, take up our cross, cross, follow him, then we are actually set free 
to become what God intended us to be. <clears throat> and finally, verse 26, he says, Forever, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So first we see the promise, the Son of Man is coming again in glory. Amen? He is coming again in glory, the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So that's definitely something to look forward to. But we want to be ready. And so he tells us to not be ashamed of being. Now, who do you think this is a warning to, Christians or non-Christians? Christians, right? Because only those... You can only be ashamed of something that you believe, right? Let's say, for example, that I was having Andrew come up here, and I was start start mocking those who deny the moon landing. Would you be ashamed of that? No, because you believe we went to the moon. But let's say I was to bring somebody up here who didn't believe we went to the moon, and they said, "I think it was all fate." <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> and we were to push back against that. Some people might begin to be a little ashamed. Yeah, I don't think we went there. Yeah, you're making me feel bad about that. I mean, but here, this is what I believe. And so because of what they believe and the pressure pushed against them, maybe even, not in this group, but in some groups, mod mocking, ridicule, right? The person could be made to feel ashamed of what they believe even though they have good reasons for believing it, they think. And so only someone who believes something can be ashamed of that belief. You know, somebody comes up here and starts talking to me about, yes, we did go to the moon. I'm not going to be ashamed and say, of course we went to the moon. I don't think we didn't. So this is a call, a warning for those who believe in Jesus. Isn't it amazing how Jesus knows us so well, right? Anybody who's standing there, would anybody need to receive this word from him? Who? Peter. You think Peter came to a point in his life when he was ashamed of Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Jesus is giving him this warning. Listen, don't be ashamed of me. Don't give place to that. Stand. Be bold for Christ. Be bold for him. Now, it's easy to point the finger at Peter. Yeah, yeah, we, we know. We, we got his record. He's got his failures recorded right here. We can read them. I've heard about him my whole life. Yeah, he, he messed up big time. Well, I'm sure glad there's not a book like this that has all my failures. Right? And I'm glad that with Jesus, his mercies are new every morning. Because as the call is to deny myself and to take up my cross and follow him, I don't do that perfectly. There are many days that I fail. And that's why we're called to do it daily, because he understands that. He knows us. He's been tried in all points like as we are, yet without sin. We have an advocate before the Father who understands and knows, you know, the struggles that we have. Because he came and took on flesh, because he came and walked, um, lived this life that he did, he understands. So he's putting it out there. Listen, there's going to come a time when it's, you're going to want to be ashamed of me. And so he's warning them there, don't do that. Don't give into that. 
Whoever's ashamed of me will be I will be ashamed of when they come. So what does it look like when you're ashamed? First off, you know, being ashamed of someone is not being ashamed of Jesus is not the same as being timid and sharing the gospel. It's not the same as it's not being, you know, I, I just I'm 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 nervous to talk to someone. Um being ashamed is when you don't want to be associated with Jesus because of how others would treat you or think of you if they knew. So that's, that's what he's pushing back against. So how do we walk that out? How do we live that out where we push back against this and refuse to be ashamed of him? You know, I used to love, I still love, in fact, I want to find, I probably would, I, I referenced this, it was a trend and I'm sad it ever went away. And that was the WWJD trend. Who remembers the WWJD trend? Anybody still have a WWJD thing? Anybody still have one? Anybody you still wearing one back there? Any, you still wearing them? That's fantastic. What does it mean? What would Jesus do? Man, that is a great reminder. You know, the, uh, the religious people in the old days, they used to wear these little boxes called phylacteries around the head. They put little verses in there. So they'd always remember them. I'm not wearing one of those anytime soon, but I'd wear a WWJD bracelet, um, you know, and something just to remind us. So if we're in a situation and something comes up, whether it's you're sitting ready to get ready to have a meal and you're sitting with someone and you're getting ready, what would Jesus do? Well, he would give thanks for the food. If I wouldn't do that. This guy might think I'm weird. Okay. Or he might be, he might be encouraged by your testimony. See, usually when we're ashamed, we always think the worst. And a lot of times it's not even a reality. It's just an imagining. Oh, if I, if I pray before my meal, then somebody's going to think something weird. Okay, they might. But what would Jesus do? And so I invite someone, hey, I'm going to ask God's blessing over the food. You're welcome to join me or not. Okay, I'll join you. Hey, is there something I can pray for you about while we're praying? No. Maybe someone's sharing something with you and they're having a, a, a burden, a hard time. They're like, oh, man. I'd like to encourage them in the Lord or pray for them, but I don't think they're a Christian. And I don't know. They might think I'm weird. What would Jesus do? Don't be ashamed. Jesus is right there beside you. What would you do? Man, I'm proud to know Jesus. Hey, that sounds really hard. Can, can I pray for you about that? What's going to happen? No, don't pray for me. Okay. Oh, no. Who could endure that sort of shame and scorn, right? They said no. We get the idea that, oh, you want to pray? Hey, everybody. There's a Christian right here. He tried to pray for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's never going to happen. Yet that's kind of what we think is going to happen, right? That we're going to be embarrassed and shamed, and that's not going to happen. Someone's going to say, most likely going to say, uh, yeah, I don't really believe in all that, but if you want to pray, sure, I'll take any sort of thoughts and prayers I can get. Good vibes. I ain't got no good vibes, but I'll pray for you. Okay. When we don't, you know, engage in that way, that's being ashamed of Jesus. So we need to be bold for Jesus, not be ashamed of him. Not to be weird or anything strange. It's just realizing 
we're following him, if we're focused, we're flying paint with Jesus, focused on the boss, then everything else that comes along is going to be seen through that perspective. It might start raining. Oh, well, it's raining, but I'm, I'm focused on that paint. It's, it's, it's getting dark. The sun's shining and glistening off. I don't know, but I'm going to focus on that. Hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what he's calling us to. <laughs> We're focused on him like that. We ain't got time to be ashamed, right? We don't have time for that. We don't have those, those things that would cause us to feel ashamed, those distractions. We're too focused on him. So that, that's... That's the challenge I received as I was studying this passage, the challenge I wanted to issue to you guys today. I want to challenge you to deny yourself today. Refuse to follow yourself today. Take up your cross today. Follow Jesus today. It's a daily thing he calls us to. It's not something we do one time and then it's all done. It's something that we have to do daily. So we're called to do daily. So I want to encourage you to make that commitment, to renew that commitment. I'm sure many of us have made that commitment before, but to renew that commitment, to be intentional about this. This is an intentional thing he's calling us to. So many of us wake up and then we're running about the day. And I got a new job now, so it's, it's a lot to do. So I wake up, hit the ground running pretty much. And it's easy for me to not stop and deny myself, to not take up my cross, to not fix my eyes on Jesus, to not focus on following him, be fine doing my own stuff, and then say, oh, where's Jesus? Oh, where is he? Why? Because I wasn't focused on him. I allowed myself to be distracted. I wasn't staying as close to him as I should be. Hopefully I'm still going in the same direction as him, but life's busy. Whether you've got a job, whether you're taking care of your family, your children, we're all busy. And so I encourage us to be intentional about these things. Let's hold one another accountable to this, this idea of following Jesus, taking up our cross daily. Because this is what he calls us to. What he called his disciples to back then is the same thing we're called to today. Because whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will save it. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, as we have considered these words today, we ask for your help as the call and the challenge, the charge that we find here is, is beyond us in many ways, Lord. So we need your help. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to avoid the distractions, to line up our desires and our intents with you, to really fix our, our gaze and to follow you, Lord. So help us to do that. Help us to, in doing so, to, to be bold for you, not be ashamed for you in any situation, Father. Just help us to do these things. Help us to be a salt and light where we find ourselves each and every day. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.